Hello, and welcome to the third episode of the Stocks and Savings podcast. I'm Andrea. I'm Jamie. And today we're going to talk about the power of cash. But first, let's look at some stock market news. As a disclaimer, remember that nothing in this podcast should be treated as financial advice. This is for educational purposes only. Always do your own research and apply your own judgment when investing. U.S. stock market indices ended their losing streak last Friday. The Dow finished the week 6.2% higher, ending eight consecutive weeks of losses. Both the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq were up more than 6% for the week and ended their seven-week losing streak. A large part of these gains came in on Thursday and Friday when the indices rallied from strong earnings and slowing inflation. Needless to say, this was a much-needed breather. In last week's podcast, we talked about the fact that this year marked the worst first 100 trading days for the S&P 500 and the Dow since 1970, and the worst ever start of the year for the Nasdaq. Does this mark the bottom of this year's long sell-off, or is it just a temporary relief? So, I saw a tweet the other day, and annoyingly, I can't remember the exact details, but it was basically comparing relief rallies in the dot-com bubble when that burst to the relief rallies that we're having now. I think in the dot-com bubble, there were probably about, I don't know, 10 times when the stock market rose more than 10% before it hit its real bottom. And so far, since the stock started going down now, we've had two occasions where we've had relief rallies. So whilst it's nice to see the markets recovering and not going down <laughs> for the ninth consecutive week, I don't think we can say that we're out of the woods yet. There's certainly still a lot of macroeconomic uncertainty out there. I'd never try and time the market or call the bottom and say this is it, but I would certainly have a note of caution to say this is unlikely to be the end of the pain for now. So investors should proceed with caution. Zscaler was up more than 12% on Friday after strong Q1 earnings. Zscaler's revenue increased 63% compared to a year ago, above Wall Street estimates, and the company also beat on earnings. These results prompted them to increase their full-year guidance. The company's share price has been cut in half in 2022. Do you think this is a turning point for Zscaler? So just a quick introduction as to what Zscaler is. They're a cybersecurity firm that have a zero trust approach. And the way they work is rather than the old fashioned world of people being connected through servers and security done that way, because now people are working remotely, they're using various clouds and cloud applications. You know, the network's got a lot more complex and Zscaler offer cybersecurity that protects enterprises and individuals when accessing these kind of data points. So going on to their results, as you say, the share price has been cut in half and you ask if it's a turning point for Zscaler. But the truth is the business of Zscaler doesn't need a turning point because the business itself has been performing time and time again. It's a very strong founder-led company and these results were just testament to the fact that it is performing so well. Like a lot of companies and a lot of cybersecurity companies, it did get pretty um, battered. <laughs> pretty battered because its valuation was pretty high uh, just a few months ago. So I think that that 50% drop in share price is purely based on valuation. The business itself is executing and doing a fantastic job. But do you think it is a turning point for its share price as well? That's a good question. That's a good question. I think that this market is very unpredictable. 
you know, Zscaler is continuing to do really, really well, but if this market decides that it just wants to drag everything lower, then Zscaler will undoubtedly be dragged lower with everything else. So absolutely no idea where the share price is going. However, I did actually buy a few shares of Zscaler the other day. So clearly I'm still confident in the company, but who knows where the share price is going in the short term. And this is why we don't try to time the market. I did actually buy a bit more of Zscaler yesterday. So for this month's investments, my approach was to top up on companies who did really well in their earnings reports, and Zscaler was one of them. Plus, you can get these companies at a 50% discount to their price from uh, six months ago as well. Although worth highlighting, Zscaler is still an expensive stock, even with this 50% drop. True, very true. And as always, this is not financial advice, so... Don't buy stocks based solely on what you hear. Okay, our main segment this week is about the power of cash. You might have heard of the phrase cash is king, but more recently another phrase has been popularized and that is cash is trash. This saying became popular in the last decade or so when central banks around the world slashed interest rates to essentially zero in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis. This means that the interest rate that you could get by putting your cash in a safe savings account would be close to zero. However, recently inflation has been running rampant in the US and the UK and central banks have been raising interest rates in response to this. Does this make saving relatively more attractive? I mean, the fact that interest rates and the central interest rate has risen in theory should raise the savings rate in bank accounts. And it has. So I've got a few emails from um, some of the savings providers that I use for my emergency fund, which we will talk about in a bit. And the interest rates have been raised by maybe 0.5%, I think. Exactly. So what can you get in bank accounts in the UK now? Probably 1%, 1.5% interest from some yeah. of the better ones? Yeah, and that's from a high yield savings account. Exactly. So the, the, those are the better ones. So you ask if saving has become relatively more attractive. But then if we put that into the context of the UK's inflation rate now being at 9%, meaning that things nowadays are 9% more expensive, and then if you put your cash in a savings account, that means that your cash will be growing at 1.5% a year, while inflation is growing at 9% a year. So this means that your cash is still losing a lot of value to the current inflation rate. Does that make saving relatively more attractive from a financial point of view? And from that point of view, not really. <laughs> but the world is entering a period of economic uncertainty, and that can make saving a bit more attractive. And we'll talk about that a little bit later on. Okay, so inflation. Let's talk about that. Inflation describes the gradual increase of goods and services over the long run. When the general level of prices goes up, then the value of each currency unit effectively goes down, as you can buy fewer things with the same amount of money. This is why you might hear your parents or your grandparents say that back in the day, a pint of milk cost 20p and now it costs 70p. So holding excess cash would reduce your wealth over time due to the erosion of your purchasing power. As you said, the latest inflation rate in the UK was 9%. Now, a pretty incredible fact, if you ask me, is that at this inflation rate, the real value of your money would be cut in half in just eight years. Ouch, that's, right? that, that is a... In just eight years? That's crazy. I mean, if we're going back to the example that you mentioned in terms of a pint of milk, and we're saying that it now costs you know, 70p or however much it costs, that means that in eight years, 
that milk will cost one pound forty. Exactly. Now, obviously, in in you know, when you talk about a pint of milk, it doesn't seem like that much. But then, let's say that an average grocery basket goes from seventy pounds to one hundred forty pounds in just eight years' time. You know, can you confidently say that if you stayed in the same job and uh, did a similar thing, that your salary would double? In eight years, I mean, that would be pushing it. And if your salary did double, that means that you'd effectively have zero pay rise in real terms. Exactly. So you wouldn't actually be growing your wealth. You would be merely preserving your purchasing power. Yeah, and keeping up with the inflation level. But on the plus side, I don't expect 9% inflation to run for the next eight years. And I think that brings us nicely to the main drawback to holding cash, which is poor returns compared to other asset classes. For example, on average, the S&P 500 has had a return of around 10% a year. And also, a long-running Barclays survey shows that over any 10-year period in the past 115 years, stocks and shares have produced higher returns than cash 90% of the time. I think that's a pretty good case to invest in stocks, isn't it? It's certainly a good Compared ca- to cash. It's certainly a good case for long-term investing. I mean, if you look over those years, the, the returns that you've got in individual years have fluctuated wildly. You know, Some years, the stock market could drop 20%, 30%. Other years, it could go up 50%. But this is a very long-term average. And I know that the old saying goes that you know past performance is no indicator of future performance. But what drives this stock market upwards is the constant innovation in the economy and the constant, you know, growing of new businesses and services and personally I would bet on that to continue around the world as we discover new technologies and new ways to enhance them and new ways to make life better through creating new products and services. So this is why we think that the stock market over the long run is one of the best ways to preserve and grow your wealth and obviously be inflation. Exactly. It's anyone's guess if any one company will exist in 50 years time. But I think it's almost a certainty that the world economy as a whole will grow due to technological progress, to innovation, and so on. Now, the stock market tends to be quite unpredictable in the short run. This is why most experts advise to stay invested for at least three to five years. This means that in the short term, cash can actually be quite useful. Unexpected things can happen. Your car might break down or a window might need to be replaced. Or in my case, you could crack your tooth during lockdown and have to pay £300 for an emergency dentist. And this is why an emergency fund is needed. Most financial advisors suggest to save up three to six months worth of living expenses. And you could hold this in cash, like in a current account, or better yet, in an easy access savings account. Yeah, exactly. I think if you go to any financial advisor, they will tell you to have that money set aside for uncertain expenses before you start investing. It's it's one of the key things that you should do beforehand alongside paying off any high interest debt such as consumer debt and credit cards. And as you say, when those surprise expenses inevitably hit, because they always will when you least expect it, the last thing you want to have to do is be forced to sell your shares in order to pay for them particularly if you're forced to sell them at inopportune prices, for example, the prices that they're at today, or the prices that they may very well be at for the next year. Now, I know that most experts say that you should save up between three to six months worth of living expenses. But do you think that there are certain circumstances in which 
a person could save less than this for an emergency fund. Say if you're, you know, young, you don't have any dependents, have a fairly stable job, so to speak. So like me, <laughs> kind of. Before, <laughs> before, before I left my stable job. Exactly. Well, funny enough, that does describe me, or, or at least that did describe me back when I had that job, because I did start investing and my savings were probably closer to a month worth of living expenses for my emergency fund. So three to six months is a very useful rule of thumb. And I think that if you have saved up that much, then you put yourself in a much stronger position. And I think it's particularly important if you have a family, if you have dependents, as you said. Whereas I think that if times got tough for me and I had an emergency expense, I know a few different levers I would be able to pull in order to make sure that I can afford that which don't involve selling my investments. And I've also been able to create multiple streams of income over the last few years. Passive income. <laughs> Semi-passive income. Yeah. Which has put me in a bit of a more confident position because I know if one of those forms of income suddenly gets cut off, then I have a couple of others that I can put more energy into and that would help me survive until I managed to, you know, cover the lost income stream that I had. So it's down to your personal situation. The more you have, the better. But I felt comfortable only having one month. So I know I mentioned that if you have any dependents like children, for example, you should probably save a bigger emergency fund. But I think you should also save a larger emergency fund if you're single. So I think it's much easier for people that are in a couple to maybe get help from their partner if they have a financial emergency than it is if you are single, for example. So I think that's something to keep in mind for all you singles out there. Yeah, that's true. You, I, that's it. You've just got to know your personal situation. I guess, yeah, I do have the advantage of you having a stable job and you probably could help me out in if any completely terrible situation hit which obviously is not my plan a or plan b but maybe it's like my plan g or something <laughs> like you know it's, it's not what i want to do but i know that you could help out and uh, similarly down the line if the positions are switched then i would be able to help you out because it, it helps when you got two people tackling these financial issues together the second advantage of holding cash is the options that it gives you. Nassim Taleb, the author of the book Anti-Fragile, wrote, an option is what makes you anti-fragile. So what does this mean? So I guess maybe the first question is, what does anti-fragile itself actually mean? And there's a really interesting book that I'm probably about two thirds of the way through. Maybe I'll finish it up while we're on holiday. But anti-fragile is basically the ability to benefit from chaos in a sense it's probably the best way that i can put it if you think of something as fragile like you know i don't know glass then you say what's the opposite of fragile some people say robust but really it's not fragile means that you know when put under stress something breaks robust means when put under stress something stays exactly the same and then the concept of anti-fragility is that when something is put under stress, it actually improves. And one of the best examples of this is something like a um, something like a vaccine when the body is injected with you know a, a tiny bit of a certain virus, and that way the body can 
create cells that defends against that virus in the future. So by giving that little bit of stress to the body, it actually makes it stronger. So sorry, I went off on a little bit of a tangent there, but just so you have an idea of what anti-fragility is, and as we'll go on to talk about a little bit more, how having money and cash can make you more anti-fragile through the options it gives. Yes, so we could apply this to investing, and I think this could be applied to companies' business models very well. I think I'm going to focus more on what this means from a personal point of view. For me, this means that you don't have to be dependent on any situation, job, or person in your life. It could mean that you can take more risks in your career, say if you wanted to quit your stable job to start freelancing or to start a business, which is something a lot of people have been doing in the last two years, actually, in what is called the Great Resignation. Having that freedom fund, as I like to call it, could enable you to take that leap and try to grow your business. Exactly, and that's exactly you know, the concept of anti-fragility, like, okay, holding that cash gives you the option to take those risks for potentially greater upsides. For example, being in a stable job and having a bit of savings, you know, that probably makes you quite robust. If a shock hits, then you're probably going to keep your job and you have a little bit of money set aside. But if you have enough money such that you can choose what you want to do. You can choose to go and try and build a business or you can even put more of that money to investing. You know, ha- having that cash saved up gives you the options to do different things. And for example, if you look at some of the times where the stock market has crashed in 2002, in 2008, 2009, you know, those were some of the best opportunities to invest. So if you had cash at that point in time, that would put you in a much stronger position to benefit over the long run. Or 2020, more recently. Or 2020, you're right, the, the March crash in 2020, or the crash that we are some point of the way through right now. Okay, so we talked about the advantages and the disadvantages of holding cash, right? Now let's talk a bit about the optimal amount of cash that you should hold when investing. Is there such a thing? Well, I guess that almost leads in quite nicely from what we just mentioned in the fact that, I mean, the the stock market is a pendulum that really likes to swing between despair and euphoria. So when you do have a level of cash and the stock market is, you know, going to the moon as it was in 2020 and 2021, you probably feel a bit silly sitting on that cash and seeing everything else go up. But then in times like now, when the stock market has dropped quite a bit, you know, we're seeing a lot of bear markets around and a lot of high-flying growth stocks have fallen more than 50%. If you have that cash position now, then you're feeling a lot smarter. But the question you asked is, what is the optimal cash position and that is a very good question i don't think i can necessarily answer that see i think i agree with what you're saying however that sounds a little bit like timing the market to me in a sense because we keep getting told they shouldn't really wait to invest right you should invest regularly ideally every time you get paid or so not necessarily wait for a market crash so i think i think it's hard to kind of maintain a balance between those two views. What do you think? I, I agree. I mean, let me talk a little bit about the approach that 
I took when I started investing in early 2020. So, and I mean, you you know this already, but I have never really held a cash balance in my account. And the reason I did this was because, I mean, there's a couple of reasons, but firstly, I was very much in the early accumulation phase of my portfolio. I mean, it had it had nothing in it three years ago. And I was simply topping up my portfolio every single month with my salary. And you can probably imagine in the beginning, that had quite a significant impact. I mean, let's say I topped up 500 pounds in the first month, and then I topped up 500 pounds in the second month. I mean, I effectively doubled the amount that I was paying in my portfolio. Even now, I mean, it helps that my portfolio has dropped quite a bit, but the amount that I'm able to invest every month is probably equal to about one, two, three percent of my total portfolio value. So when I'm putting in that much on a regular basis, I don't think it makes sense for me, or at least I don't feel the need to have a cash holding. Because I know if I see the market drop as it has done this year, that I will be getting paid every single month, and I will be taking a portion of my salary every single month and putting it into the market. So I know that I can take advantage of the time when the market does drop. And you mentioned about having a cash holding that could be used as timing the market. It could, arguably it could be that. But I think one thing with a cash holding is it does give people a level of comfort, particularly if you decide to automate it so that you don't even really think about it. Like say, okay, I want 5% of my portfolio to be cash. So let's say you have a £10,000 portfolio and the market starts going crazy like it has done in the past and that money doubles. Well, if you're having 5% of your holdings as cash, back when it was worth 10000 you would have been holding £500 in cash. But now that it's at 20000 that means you would have had to increase your cash holdings to £1,000. So as the market goes up and if there's a chance that you know things could be getting a little bit dicey in terms of valuation you still have that five percent cash buffer then say the market falls as it has done now and you go back from twenty thousand down to ten thousand what you'll be doing you'll still be slowly deploying that cash because if you want that five percent cash holding as a part of your portfolio you'll have to reduce it back from one thousand pounds to five hundred pounds and sorry i know i know i'm talking a lot of numbers here so so sorry <laughs> so, sorry if it's um a little bit a little bit too much for a podcast but the the long story short is that having that cash balance gives you options as you mentioned before and it can also just provide you with a little bit of comfort but personally if i was ever to do it i would want it to be more strict like i always have 5% of my portfolio as cash or i always have I don't know, a thousand pounds in cash. Otherwise, it would be very tempting to try and, as you say, time the market, which, as we both know, is very difficult to do. Yeah, so I think the conclusion for me from this is that, as with anything, it is personal. So the amount of cash that you hold in your portfolio will be what you are personally comfortable with. So maybe that's no cash that you hold. You stay 100% invested, apart from your emergency fund, of course. Or maybe you go as far as to having, I don't know, 20% cash or so. I mean, Warren Buffett, one of the greatest investors of all time, has a habit of sitting on a lot of cash. Which is fine. So I think as an individual investor, what's really important for me 
is not necessarily to get the highest return possible, but it's important for me to be happy with it. It's important to get the return that would make me feel comfortable and that wouldn't make me lose sleep over it. So, you know, if this means that you need to hold like 30% of your portfolio in cash, then that's fine. As long as you are invested or somewhat invested, and as long as you are growing your wealth in one form or another, I think that's fine. And you don't lose sleep over it. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Okay, I think that should be all for today. But Jamie, before we wrap up, do you have any concluding thoughts? Well, it might be quite lazy and quite repetitive because we say this in pretty much every episode. But as with anything, this is personal. And it's about your own situation when it comes to cash, whether that's the amount you put aside for an emergency fund, whether that's how much you save every month rather than invest, or whether that's how much of your investing portfolio you want to have in cash. I guess there are two sides to it. The first thing is to just kind of learn more and more about these subjects. And then once you learn enough and once you go through enough, you will know what works for you and what you need and what you're comfortable with. And I think particularly when we look at the amount of cash you hold in your portfolio, if you've been investing over the last couple of years, you have been through one crazy cycle. And I think that this would have taught you a lot about you as an investor. And from that, you can learn whether or not you are comfortable holding more or less cash than you have been over this period. So yeah, it's it's all personal as always, but just try and think about your situation and what works for you. All right, so this concludes episode three of the Stocks and Savings podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate it and leave a review and also share it with a friend. Sharing is caring. If you want even more investing and personal finance content, do follow us on Instagram where we share daily tips. See you next Thursday.